Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to, good to see new faces. We warmly welcome you. We're continuing this morning in our study of John's Gospel, and we find ourselves this morning in John's Gospel, chapter 20. And we're going to, our reading is from the 19th verse to the 31st verse, 19 to 31. So would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this great passage together, let's just ask for the Lord's help. Lord, by your Spirit. And through your word, reveal yourself to us as you did to this company gathered together so long ago. For we ask it in the power, the powerful name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Well, 20 years ago today, the American people and in one sense, the entire world awoke to a new reality in the wake of the Al-Qaeda terrorist attack. It was not only that the World Trade Center that had once stood there so proudly was now nothing more than a vast smoldering debris field with many of their colleagues still trapped beneath. But it was perhaps the realization that something so evil, so unimaginably terrible could have happened not just on the other side of the world, but in their own backyard. 
For many, life would never be the same. One news column put it this way, the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington were events that seemed to cleave history itself, carving America's timeline into a before and after that existed in entirely different dimensions. On September 12, the country awakened to find itself on a profoundly different course. Now, in a similar way, this little company that we are introduced to in chapter 20 awoke to a new reality on that first Easter morning that would have been to them every bit as devastating. And if we are going to understand this chapter in more than just a cold, clinical way, it's important that we linger for a moment and feel the weight of their despair in the wake of the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. For three years they had walked where he walked, ate where he ate, slept where he slept. They had been protected by his presence, comforted by his words, and inspired by his mission. They had set the, all of their hopes on him, and now his place was empty, and I can't help but wonder if they struggle, struggled with the will to go on. Jesus had told them before all this happened that they would have sorrow and that they would weep and lament. And now that time of sorrow had come. But Jesus had also told them that that sorrow would be turned into joy. And before this passage is done, they move from devastating grief to unimaginable joy as their hopes are first shattered and then replaced by a far greater reality. So in this chapter, as we had last week, we meet Mary Magdalene, a woman out of whom the Lord had cast seven demons. And because of that, she loved him with an intensity that seemed to surpass even that of the 11 disciples. Her highest hope that first Easter morning was simply to draw some small comfort from being near the dead body of the one she loved. And when even that was taken away from her, she became frantic. Even the sight of the angels fails to impress her or distract her from her quest of finding his body. But instead of her finding his body, the risen Christ finds her and sends her with a message of hope to the disciples. Then there was Peter and John, with all their energy, who ran to the tomb to see what had become of the body of Jesus. And they entered the tomb, and they saw, and they believed, but then, then they simply went home and seemed not to know what to do with this knowledge. And now in this latter section of the chapter, we see the disciples gathered together, first with Thomas absent, and then eight days later with Thomas present as the risen Lord reveals himself to them. And in these two joyous reunions that we get in this passage that we've read, he brings to them three things, comfort, commissioning, and communion. Comfort, commissioning, and communion. Comfort for that Easter morning, peace 
was the furthest thing from their minds. And so he comforts them with his peace. Commissioning, for they had a job to do. And he, with the Father and the Spirit, the whole Trinity, sends them to do it. Communion because, well, because this company was fractured by grief, the grief that accompanied his death, and because they were all at very different levels in their understanding of what was happening and in their reactions to it, yet in his presence and seeing in his hands inside the tokens of his love, they are brought together in sweet communion with him and with one another. So let's look at this passage this morning from under those three headings, the Lord's comfort, the disciples' commissioning, and the communion into which he brought them. Let's start with our first point, comfort. And I want to read again from the 19th verse. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now as Pastor David mentioned in his prayer, peace is such an overused word and such an improperly used word that the impact of what Jesus is bringing to them can be lost on us unless we take a moment to meditate upon it. So let's do that. Think about the the state that the disciples would have been in that first Easter morning, or uh, that first Easter evening. They had locked themselves in in a room for fear of the Jews. They'd never had to do that before, for Jesus had been with them. His presence had protected them. But now they feel alone and afraid. What would become of them? Where were they to go from here? How could they go on Without him. That was the state that they found themselves in. But suddenly, he is with them beyond death. For the last three years, the specter of death had hung over them, and his warnings of what was to come had unnerved them. But now he had gone into death, conquered death, and returned to them. Surely that would have given them great peace. But I think that there would have been something else that morning that was robbing them of peace. No doubt there was a sense of guilt. A sense of guilt for having left him on Friday. All of them had fallen away that past Friday. Peter had even denied three times that he knew him. Surely they would have expected a rebuke. And they would have felt a sense of shame and a sense of disloyalty for their actions. But there was no rebuke. And we read in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Why did he show them his hands and his side? And why did that make them glad? Well, I'm sure in one sense it was a a confirmation that it was physically him. It was his physical body. Those nail scars would have proved it. That wound in his side would have proved it. And they would have recognized those wounds. But I think those wounds did something else. They proved that he really had made peace through the blood of his cross. He had gone to the cross, 
born stroke upon stroke, the wrath of God for their every sin. He had completely exhausted the wrath of God that was against them and declared, it is finished. He had gone into death and destroyed it and risen triumphant. And those wounds proved it and proved that he and he alone had the power to cleanse their sins and make peace. And you know, Jesus bears those wounds in his hands and side to this day before the Father. And he intercedes for us there before the Father with those wounds in his hands and side. Which is why not one charge that is brought against the redeemed will ever stick, as the hymn writer put it. And his own wounds in heaven declare the atoning work is done. The story is told of an elderly Christian woman who was nearing the end. And she was lying there in a hospital bed, drifting in and out of consciousness. And at one point, she awakened and saw, standing beside her bed, a man with a clerical collar. And she she asked him in a weak voice, what do you want? And he said to her, I have come to forgive your sins and to administer last rites. She looked at him with a puzzled look on her face and she said, why did you say you were here? And he said, I have come to forgive your sins. So again, she looked at him puzzled and she said in a weak but firm voice, let me see your hands. The surprised cleric held out his hands and she grasped one of them and looked at it intently. And then she let it go and said, you imposter. The only man who can forgive sins has nail prints in his hands. Well, those wounds in his hands were proof that he had made peace through the blood of his cross and so that he could truly bring peace to them. They could truly be at peace. Do you have peace this morning, brothers and sisters? Or do the sins of the past haunt you? Remember that this very morning, there is a real man in the glory, flesh and bones, with real wounds in his hands, standing before the Father. An eternal reminder that the debt of those who are his own has been forever canceled. And do you have peace in the midst of the turbulent times that we are going through? I know that many of you are fearful for your jobs And for your educational opportunities, I know that some of you have already heard that you've lost your jobs and have had your education put on hold, on an indefinite hold, and you feel angry and you feel bewildered and fearful for the future, not unlike these disciples must have felt. But you know, when we come together with the Lord Jesus, and he is here with the Lord Jesus in our midst, he speaks peace into our hearts. And when we come to his table and see by faith the wounds in his hand and side, hands and side, we hear him say, peace be with you. And how do they respond in verse 20? Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. There is no sorrow that the presence of God cannot heal. There is no anxiety 
that his peace cannot quiet. And there is no joy like the experience of his love. As the 19th century century writer Elizabeth Charles put it, the personal love of Christ to you, felt, delighted in, returned, is actually, truly, simply, without exaggeration, the deepest joy and the deepest feeling that the heart of man or woman can know. It will absolutely satisfy your heart. It would satisfy your heart if it were his will that you should spend the rest of your life alone in a dungeon. Oh, may we in the coming weeks and months, through these trying times, learn together the comfort of his presence. Well, we've talked about the comfort that the Lord brought. Now let's talk about the commission that he gave, the commission he gave. And let's look again at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, it was very necessary that they have this peace because the Lord was sending them out to bring peace. You can't bring peace if you don't have peace. Peace had to be the starting position if they were to fulfill their commission. If you know anything about martial arts, usually what they teach you is that your starting position must be a position of balance. Because you can't strike powerful blows if you're unbalanced. And if you're flat on your back, it doesn't matter how skillful you are, it's all over at that point. And so, the same is true with Christian life and ministry. The starting position must be peace. For it is only when we know peace that we can bring peace. Now let's look a little deeper into this sending, this commissioning. First we see that the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit are involved in this commissioning. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then in verse 22, we have the Holy Spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what was this? Well, immediately our minds should go back to creation. When God breathed into the first Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. This enabled Adam to function in the garden and to exercise dominion over God's creation in relationship with God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15.45 we read, The first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, as you know, Jesus is the second Adam who did all that the first Adam failed to do and then died, rose victorious, a life-giving spirit. And as such, he breathes in his disciples resurrection life so that they can fulfill the commission that he had given them to fulfill. Now, the question will be asked, as it was asked at our small group on Tuesday, Is this the same thing as Acts 2 when the Spirit of God came upon the church on the day of Pentecost? And I would suggest rather that it's the impartation of resurrection life and perhaps, as some have said, a foretaste of the the Spirit which would be sent from an ascended, glorified Christ on the day of Pentecost. Now, on that question, you might be helped by John 7, 39, for as yet the Spirit had not 
been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But I wouldn't get too hung up on that. The important thing to see here is that the whole Trinity is involved in the sending of the disciples. And this should impress upon us the absolute priority of the call that is placed upon our lives. Sometimes we're just so cavalier about setting aside the call that has been placed upon our lives by the, by the whole Trinity. And this should also impress upon us the immeasurable power that works in us to fulfill that call no matter what the dangers or the obstacles. The power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is that is in us to fulfill the call that he has given us. And then in verse 23, the Lord explains what the, their commission is. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now what's that? It's probably good to note that this passage has been misused to justify the false idea that God has conferred upon a priest or a bishop or anyone else the power to forgive sins. So as we seek to understand the meaning of this verse, we have to look at the whole of Scripture. Let's be careful, brothers and sisters, as we examine the Scriptures together, which of course we're all doing. We don't take a verse in isolation. We look at the whole of Scripture. And so we have to do that here. And and we will find that there is no record anywhere in Scripture of mere man forgiving sin. I mean in the sense of absolving someone of their sins before God. If you look at the ministry of the apostles, you will never see that. Consider, for example, Acts 8, where Peter confronts, remember Simon Magus, who wanted to buy the ability to impart the Spirit? And, Simon, and, and Peter confronts him over this, and listen to what he says in Acts 8.22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to who? To Peter? Let's get it right. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. If Peter had the power to forgive sins, why did he tell Simon Magus? To pray to the Lord. And also consider when Peter was sent to the Gentiles, what does he say to Cornelius and those that are gathered with him? We could find that in Acts 10 and verse 43. To him, says Peter, speaking of the Lord Jesus, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter never once takes the position of one who can forgive sins, but rather, as it says in 10.14, Acts 10.14, he will declare to you, Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. So I want to be really clear on this. What Peter and these disciples, which incidentally this company was quite likely more than just the 11. But what they were given here is the right and the responsibility to administer the message, the means by which people could receive the forgiveness of sins, a message that, if rejected, would obligate them to declare the withholding of forgiveness. Now, some of the kids, if you're still listening, may say that all sounds very difficult to understand. So I want to put this in terms that maybe make it simpler for us to understand. Let us, let's just suppose that I owe an incredibly great debt that I could never repay to someone in this room. Let's suppose it was $10 million. And that person comes to you and says, I have decided to forgive 
rust of that debt. And I have written up the paperwork here. And all that needs to be done is for him to understand this and then to sign his name to the bottom. And I would like you to take these papers to him and administer this forgiveness. And so you come to me with those papers and you explain them to me and you ask me to sign. Now, if I should say, I don't wish to sign these papers, you would explain, well, forgiveness of this debt is withheld. And if I accept and sign, you communicate to me that forgiveness is granted. But think about this. Is it you who is forgiving me? No, you're ra- rather you are communicating to me the means of forgiveness that I have through the kindness and generosity of my creditor. Now, think about what an amazing privilege this is. Because that is exactly what you've been given to do. Not for the mere sum of $10 million, but for the forgiveness of sins. To carry to others the message of the forgiveness of sins. God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. To bring a world that is awash in guilt and fear. The message of forgiveness and the warning of forgiveness withheld to those who will not repent. Well, we talked about the comfort that the Lord brought to his disciples and the commission that he gave them. Now let's talk about our last point, the communion into which he brought them with himself and with one another. As we said already, this little company in John 20 was fractured. Thomas was not with them. So when they tell Thomas, when they find him later and they tell Thomas that they've seen the Lord, Thomas has this unexpected, almost fierce response in verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Perhaps those wounds were the only thing that Thomas could think of. His only reality. Perhaps he had watched as those wounds were inflicted. And it had left deep, deep wounds on his own soul. And to hear others speak of those wounds produced great emotion in him. Do you bear deep wounds on your soul this morning? then perhaps you understand why Thomas was not there with the others. Perhaps you understand why he seemed to be inconsolable. Because you know that there's something in the human heart that seems to, that can break and seems to be, put us beyond consolation. Something that cannot be appealed to by mere words and reason. It is as we have in Matthew 2, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's Jacob weeping for Joseph who refused to be comforted because all he has is a blood-stained coat and the memories of the one that once wore it. So before we nickname him Doubting Thomas, before we cluck our tongues at him for his unbelief, remember that we are dealing with a man who loved deeply. And the deeper you love, the deeper the wounds when the object of that love is taken away from you. 
Have your wounds this morning become your only reality? The filter through which you view everything in life? If so, then perhaps you understand why Thomas was not with the others the first time and why he received this news with bitterness instead of joy. And perhaps the disciples, in in hearing Thomas' bitter response, felt helpless and felt that their words had no effect on Thomas whatsoever. But eight days later, he was back. What happened over those eight days? We don't know. It was the Lord's private work in Thomas' heart. But the restoration process started with the disciples' testimony, and the Lord um, continued and completed that work. And those who labor with the emotionally wounded can often feel that their efforts to encourage are fruitless. But when we minister Christ to those who are emotionally wounded and bathe our efforts in prayer, the Lord continues the work when we can no longer and when we feel we've come to the end. And often, we never see the results, at least not in this life. And you know what? It's also striking to me that the Lord doesn't reveal himself to Thomas individually in those eight days. He doesn't reveal himself till he's with the other, the others. And don't make the mistake of thinking that you can enjoy the same communion with the Lord in private as you can in communion with your brothers and sisters. The Lord reveals himself to us in a special way when we come together in communion. I hope that none of us here are buying into this notion that virtual church is a thing. It's not. It's an oxymoron, actually. It means, church means assembly. To assemble, not to disassemble. And I'm going to put a really fine point on this, if you will allow me. If you are not coming to church on a regular basis and being in communion with your brothers and sisters, and having the word minister to one another and singing the praises, you are going to get discouraged and you are going to fall away and you're going to fall into sin. It's just that simple. And I'm going to push it even a little bit further, if I can, this morning. If you're not part of a small group where we can unpack the scripture a little bit more and where we can have more intimate fellowship with one another and talk to one another about what the scriptures are saying and share the griefs of our heart and have one another praying for us, not just then, but throughout the week and following up on us, it's going to lead to a discouragement. You're going to be more susceptible to discouragement and despair in your life. Why wouldn't you be part of a small group? You say, I don't know how to get involved with a small group. Well, then send me an email. Send Pastor David an email after. It's on the back of the bulletin. We'll make sure that you get signed up with a small group. It's important, brothers and sisters. We need to have that. And there's something very beautiful about this little gathering in our passage. For there you have this variety of characters with all their strengths and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies. Mary Magdalene, who has such a deep love for Jesus, but in, in many ways she's ignorant as to the counsels of God. Peter and John, who exercised great energy in searching out the empty tomb, seeing and believing, and then they just left and leave Mary to, to weep by herself in solitude. They believed, but they didn't seem to know what to do with their belief, so they just went home. And then there's Thomas, who's wounded and needing irrefutable proof before he will believe. 
But as varied and as flawed as they were, they are brought together in sweet communion in the presence of Jesus as they see in his hands and in his side the tokens of his love. And there's something very instructive, I think, for us in this. For we all come from different backgrounds from which we bring valuable things and, frankly, baggage. Some have deep affection for Christ, but they're a little mixed up in their understanding of scriptures, of the scriptures. Some have great energy to uncover the truth, but lack the affection and patience that it should produce. Somehow that truth hasn't quite worked its way yet down into their feet and into their hands. And some are wounded and skeptical and find it hard to believe and trust, yet possess a deep, deep loyalty for Christ. But as we sit together in his presence and meditate on his love for us, our hearts are knit together in love. And we desire to minister to one another's needs and to respond to the call that God has placed upon our lives. Away from the Lord's presence, then Thomas had rejected the testimony of the disciples and set conditions on his belief. But one glimpse of the Savior and all that bitterness melts away and he makes this great confession. My Lord and my God. One of the strongest defenses to the deity of Christ that we have in this gospel. Could spend a whole sermon on it. And then Jesus is as as if looking down through the ages to us. Gather here today. He says in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And while this statement is a gentle rebuke for Thomas, it's also a blessing for us who have believed without seeing. And we rejoice in the gift of faith that has enabled us to believe and to love the one that we have not yet seen. As Peter put it, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And this indeed is the purpose of this gospel. That we might believe and have life through his name. It's not just existence. It's abundant life. A life that endures through trial and affliction. A life that perseveres and does not faint and give up or walk away in discouragement. Brothers and sisters, this is not a time to be fearful. It's not a time to be faint-hearted. It is not a time to be discouraged and in despair. The Lord has given us peace, and he has given us a commission, and he has placed us in communion. So I charge you, brothers and sisters, I charge you, lift up the hands that hang down, strengthen the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. And I want to conclude with this. I understand that there is a wall on a room deep within the bowels of the CIA with a a sign with these words. Every day is September 12th. Every day is September 12th. It's intended, I suppose, to serve as a reminder that the vigilance and commitment that was produced in the wake of of the 9-11 attacks needs to be exercised every day. 
It's been said that the greatest failure related to 9-11 was not a failure in intelligence, but a failure in imagination. There was, in retrospect, lots of intelligence that might have prevented what happened. But it seems that no one really believed that anyone would actually do such a thing. Now, let's not make that mistake ourselves. On the one hand, our hearts are warmed as we think of the disciples' sorrow being turned into joy. But on the other hand, we need to consider whether this discouragement and this despair could have been avoided. Like, it's not as though the Lord hadn't told them beforehand, is it? That that they would have sorrow and that joy would follow, but somehow they just never got the memo. And when it happened, just as he promised it would, they were caught off guard. And today, on September 12, 2021, many of us are feeling devastated as we see our liberties taken away and our jobs taken away and our hopes and dreams being crushed. But wait, didn't the Lord tell us that this was going to happen? Didn't he? All they that live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We were caught off, we were warned that this would happen, just as the disciples were, but perhaps we were caught off guard, just as they were as well. But just as the Lord turned their sorrow into joy, I believe he will do the same for us. And part of that may involve the painful stripping away of the things that we had our hopes in that we shouldn't have had our hopes in. But I believe that the Lord will replace those empty hopes with something infinitely more precious. His comfort, his commission, and the community into which he has brought us. And these things will fill us with joy unspeakable as it did those early disciples. So this is not a time for discouragement. This is not a time for despair. This is not a time to run away. This is a time to stand. He's given us the belt of truth. He's given us the breastplate of righteousness. He's given us the gospel of peace for our feet. The shield of faith to quench the enemy's fiery darts. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit so that we might stand. And having done all to stand. So let's stand. Let's stand in his peace. Let's stand in response to his call. And let's stand in communion with our Savior and through, him, through, and through him in communion with one another. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we come now around your table, reveal to our hearts your presence in our midst. And in these emblems of your body, your blood, may we see the wounds that are the tokens of your immeasurable love for us. Through this meal, speak peace to our hearts. Unite us in communion and send us out with the strength and the courage that we need for these difficult times, knowing that in you, We already have the victory. We ask it in your powerful name. Amen. Let's come to the Lord's table together.